0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello,
1: Blogging Heads Nation. This is Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and I also write spoiler alerts for The Washington Post.
0: And I'm Heather Hurlbert. I run the New Models of Policy Change Initiative at New America, and I also write for Daily Intelligencer at New York Magazine. And we are glad to be back with you here in this August. Um, rumors that we took long leave of absence so we could concentrate on our role as informal clubhouse to the advisors to the Red Sox are sadly not true, but we will happily take credit for any and all wins. Um, get back to me about the Nationals later. It's kind of like watching American foreign policy—watching the Nationals.
1: Ooh, that. Oh, that's just the worst metaphor. Oh, but it's, but
0: tell me I'm. I mean, tell me I'm wrong, right? Except no. That-
1: I. I. The only time I've watched the Nationals this year was watching the Red Sox play the Nationals. And, yeah, I was wincing watching the Nationals. So yes, and here. that
0: was, like, that was not as bad as it is now, again, except for Max Scherzer, who is going to win the Cy Young because he is going to win 20 games, like, if we have to go on the field. <laughs> but now we're going we're gonna to take just a second and reenact for you the conversation that we had on trying to discuss what to discuss today. Okay, so Dan I'll
1: start said, right. Heather, what should we talk about today?
0: And I said, oh,
1: hell. <laughs> And I just laughed, and I said, I'm laughing, so that way I don't cry.
0: So, America, here we are. We feel your pain. And we're going to start because, of course, what could possibly be more important to talk about than um, security clearances of former officials, because really, who gives a damn? (laughs) Or why should anyone give a damn? I mean, who ever stopped to think about that ever in the history of ever, Right. Now, I have an answer for why it matters, but Dan,
1: does this I have matter? an answer? Um, so you know, does it answer does it matter for national security? I think a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, it is legitimately true that intelligence agencies do like to consult with people who already have security clearances, denying security clearances to former principals like uh, former CI Director John Brennan or the list of other intelligence officials that uh, believe Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced were under review um, yesterday does, uh, you know, is potentially problematic, particularly given the fact that according to, I believe, NBC News, the announcement was made without any consultation whatsoever with Dan Coats, who's, you know, no one special, just the U.S. Director of National Intelligence. Um, The other more serious, you know, there are two other ways in which this matters, obviously. The, The first is that it obviously casts a pall over the question of whether, you know, if former intelligence officials, you know, speak critically of the president, do they put their security clearance at risk? Um, again, it was striking. And, you know, Sanders did not do well, I thought, in her press uh, conference yesterday because uh, she kept not being able to answer the question why there were no Republicans on the list when there were certain Republicans like, let's say, I don't know, Mike Flynn, who certainly committed did things that might have, you know, justified a, a proper review of this, um, but I think the biggest reveal about all of this is the fact, frankly, that the, the the Trump White House is just so bad at trying to pretend that there's actually some abstract principle at work here. Um, you know, the, the press statement made it seem like Brennan had committed some sort of, you know, uh, uh, unpardonable sins, even though the press statement was frankly badly drafted. But in some ways, Trump himself gave away the game when he. Inter, you know, talked to the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday afternoon, and then the interview came up today basically saying, yeah, this is about Russia. It's totally about Russia. I blame Brennan. Boom. Um, and so this really isn't anything other than, than, you know, another sphere of life where raw politics is interceding.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I actually thought the Sarah Sanders performance achieved exactly what it was supposed to achieve, which was intimidation, which is we will yank your security clearance if We think you are behaving in a way that is a problem to us. And so the reason that you as an American should care about this is not so much because of the intelligence implications of it, but that it's another step on the road away from government by laws and sort of having the same sets of norms and standards apply to everybody, whether you like what they're saying or not. And it's another step toward, and I keep using the phrase, the cliche, because it fits here, government of men. Or intimidation, you know, authoritarian intimidation by individuals that it power.
1: Can we say governance by fiat? Because I think that's actually what it is.
0: But I liked fiat.
1: Um, uh, yeah. yeah, but I mean, this is so. This is government by presidential prerogative. I mean, I, I believe, I think I read, uh, I think Bradley Moss had a piece in Lawfare about whether or not, not whether or not this is something Trump should do, but whether or not this is something Trump, Trump legally can do. And the answer seemed to be, Probably, but not necessarily because it's, again, done in such a capricious manner. But, you know, clearly the Constitution does endow the president with the possibility of doing something like this, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, the entire so there is the additional problem that the entire culture of um, security clearances and classified information is totally out of control in the post 9-11 era. And the volume of stuff that is classified um, and ways that it is managed is totally out of hand and, and ridiculous and not. Not sort of in line with um, focusing on what's what's really really essential. Um, it's a more of a needle in the haystack model. But still, having said all of this, the point where individuals who were formerly highly privileged start worrying about which ranks of the highly privileged they get to stay in, at the discretion of an individual, is one of the one of those sort of stations on the cro- of the cross that you see in the dissent.
1: Into authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to push you on this, which is I'm I, in, in no way defending what Trump did. And furthermore, I, I, I find people who say, well, this raises a valid question of why do these formers have security clearances in the first place? And are they monetizing them? To be frankly, a horseshit uh, justification because it's it's a completely illegitimate way of bringing up that question, whether there's any validity to it or not.
0: Just for what- the, yes, they are monetizing them. And like yeah. everybody. In this country, who has anything they can monetize? They monetize it. And so, you know, yes, sure, let's have that conversation. But
1: I should say, not here. Yeah, but furthermore, the other thing is, mean, this is what I wrote for the Post today, is that if you look at Trump's justifications for why he revoked Brennan's security clearance, Trump has made a compelling brief for why a security clearance should be denied to Donald Trump. Um, Because whatever you think Brennan has done, Trump has done in spades. Um, You know, ranging from frenzied commentary to monetizing the office. So. um, So, you know, without in any way defending whatever, you know, Brendan's uh, Brendan's form of discourse, it it just it rebounds. It's again, it's classic sort of Trump case of self projection.
0: Well, and Uh, also. Let's pause and like note that the specific Brennan discourse that appears to have put him over the top was criticizing the president for calling one of the president's former employees and confidants, who also happens totally randomly, I'm sure, to be black woman, a dog. And it was Brennan's. It was not Brennan's commentary on Russia. It was not Brennan, whatever else Brennan is doing out there in the world of commerce and intelligence. It was Brennan saying the president shouldn't be going around calling people dogs. Which does
1: prove once again that this is always and everything all about Omarosa, um, but I, I want to. But I do want to ask a slightly deeper question, which is, and I know you've made this argument else, you know, elsewhere, and it, it's a common argument I, I hear sometimes in the Beltway of, oh, look, this is another norm being eroded. We will never get back to where we were pre two thousand sixteen, and I have to say there are some areas where that I'm willing to entertain that possibility. This isn't one of them, though. This does strike me as an example of something where whatever president, whoever president succeeds Trump is probably not gonna go down this road, that we are gonna see this norm essentially reconstituted, you know, come 2021 or 2025, assuming we're alive.
0: Well, that is a nice way to look at it. I, I think it's too narrow a way to look at it and I'll, I'll give you two examples. Um, okay. one, one is the, the incessant bubbling to the surface of uh, behavior by ICE officials which um, is some of it is probably against the law. Some of it is not against the letter of the law, but is deeply inhumane and wrong, just the kind of casual, verbal, and situational abuses of people who, you know, in another administration, one might say, are ICE's clients or are ICE's customers. Um, But that that it's very clear that down to very uh, low-level folks, folks feel empowered to exercise their sort of fiat of personalized authority. Um, So so that and so, yeah, you can it's it's much easier, actually, to replace a president than it is to change back a culture within any organization, public or private. And the second example I want to raise is that this is not just um, in the U.S., that it's empowering global bad behavior. And and I recommend to readers, to viewers, the essay that uh, Peter Beinart wrote in the foreword about being detained um, at by Israeli, uh, which is
1: also right, Right. sorry, go ahead, keep going.
0: Customs and Border Service. And one of the things that they said to him was, you know, oh, you think we're mistreating you. You know, do you, you know, this is what you do in the U.S. to people who try to come to your country. Mm
1: So, again, just to clarify, I, I agree with you that there are certain areas where, in fact, it's a, a genuinely valid question to ask if we're going to be able to to return to the prior status quo. I'm just saying that on the question of, you know, presidents deciding personally whether former[s] will have security clearances or not, that's not one of them. I think this is one of those things where people who bemoan the erosion of norms, this is a this is th- maybe it's anomalous, but I just don't think it's going to happen again.
0: Yeah, I don't. I just I don't think. Um... I don't think the subject matter erosion of norms is as simple as this one discrete norm. Oh, (laughs) yeah. No, no, absolutely. You know, this is another. But speaking of norms and (laughs) rules and whether we can ever get the hell back or what it is we what it is we we will have in our hands at the end of this administration. um, Dan, during our our long hiatus, there's been lots of really interesting developments in that borderlands between economics and security that you and I both love to patrol. So, um, you know, this week we have, um, I mean, basically U.S. sanctions are collapsing the Turkish economy, which is interesting. Um, The uh, European um, Union came to Washington and um, pretended to offer some concessions in order to slow down the U.S.-Europe trade war, and then amusingly Went home and promptly everyone went on vacation, just like they always do. So there was a great news story about how actually no one in Europe is doing any work toward the resumption, the immediate resumption of really awesome trade talks that Trump talked about. And third, um, the rumor mill—this has happened every couple months for the last six months—but the rumor mill is heating up that we're about to see that famous new NAFTA deal.
1: So um, fourth. Also, fourth, probably in the next couple of weeks, we are going to see a a decision on whether or not the administration is actually going to apply uh, tariffs on automobiles, which for all of the bad, bad, bad tariff and trade actions that have been taken in 2018, they are all dwarfed. If, in fact, uh, the Trump administration imposes tariffs on automobiles, it's a much larger sector of the economy would have much larger uh, macroeconomic effects. So, yes, this is. Um, I was looking around my desk because, you know, I was, I was sipping a lovely iced coffee and, and by moving to trade, I now need to find the hard liquor that I keep somewhere around here um, to go to that because it's, it's not going to, to go well. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, I need the, uh, are you watching uh, uh, Sharp Objects? I am not, I'm afraid. Oh, okay. Uh, Because... Amy Adams is a, plays an alcoholic, and she has like an Evian bottle that is clearly filled with vodka. So, I need one of those as well. Apparently, um, so yeah, you know, it it's uh, it is a bad year for um, the trade wars, or rather, a great year if you want trade wars. Uh, and I'm not sure what I can link to this way. I, I would say a couple of things. The first is is that I am legit surprised. At the degree to which the administration has tried to carry out this sort of strategy, even though it's very divided internally on how to deal with these kinds of things. It's divided in terms of the European Union and it's divided in terms of how to handle China on this stuff. Uh, Second, it's not like it's all that popular. Um, And it's particularly unpopular, I would add, in places where Trump ostensibly uh, wants to do well politically, such as the Midwest. Um, and indeed, the very fact that it's hurting things like soybean farmers demonstrates that that he's actually genuinely hurting his base with this this move. And and for all the stories that you see about, you know, factories where workers are going out, you know, are, are losing their jobs, but they'll stick with Trump because he's a fighter. You know, that'll work if this stuff gets resolved in the next couple of months. But I see no evidence whatsoever that it'll get resolved in the next couple of months. Indeed, if anything, the EU move. Um, from last month is probably going to convince countries like Japan and so on and so forth to say symbolically, we'll be happy to talk with you and then string things out as long as possible. And in some ways, Trump is their enabler on this because the moment they make some sort of announcement, Trump inevitably does a 180 where he goes from saying, I've been really, really tough to I have just negotiated the greatest trade deal ever. Um, And so as a result, by doing that, he he winds up locking himself into a apparent victory and he's been doing this not just on trade but on any kind of negotiation where he proclaims the initial announcement is the the grand success without realizing that there's usually a whole lot of follow through that has to be done and and very often it won't be done. Um, So the one way in which I am weirdly optimistic about all of this, I suppose there are two ways. Way one is that this has yet to have actual real-world effects on the economy. I mean, it definitely has had sectoral effects. If you're a soybean farmer, you're not happy right now. But it hasn't caused you know the overall economy to, to slag off, or it hasn't uh, in, imposed a significant drag on growth yet. Possibly, and, and here I'm going to be speculating, I think it's because markets are actually underestimating the possibility of a, a big blow-up. Um, but the second reason I'm weirdly optimistic is that Trump has actually single-handedly managed to invert um, public opinion on trade, which is impressive, uh, which is to say that you know it used to be the case – if we were having this conversation a decade ago, we were talking about why is it that elites are big fans of free trade whereas the public is profoundly skeptical. Um, it's actually now reversed in which the Trump administration is very skeptical about trade, but the public has been ever-increasingly enthusiastic about the idea of trade. Um, and so as a result, they aren't big fans of any of these actions.
0: Yeah, I um, I look at that, that public opinion data, and what I think is happening is that um, Democrats have become more supportive of trade because Trump opposes it. That's partly what's going on. Republicans have become more supportive of trade because by trade they mean what Trump is doing. And one of of the real sort of challenges i think we have about picking up the pieces of international economic policy is that we the public means all kinds of different things when yep. you when you ask it about trade and we tend not to know so in in sort of politicians making either a totally cynical political effort or a good faith effort or both to to understand what the public thinks like just the survey data that we have really don't don't tell us very much.
1: Well, okay. So I'm going to push back on this, and I have to say I'm I'm prepped on this because I literally just yesterday I was I'm on the board. I, sh- of the I knew
0: when you said you'd been having hanging out with Dina. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, a note, the- note to
0: folks that the the Chicago Council's um, polling data is one of one of the sort of mother loads of of things for national security folks to argue about. So go go check that right, out. Right, and
1: on. and I'm on the board of advisors for the, that oversees the survey. So I the the report's not going to come out for a few months, but I've seen the the preliminary results. Um, the one pushback, a, a few pieces of pushback. One is it's not just Republicans. I, I, your story would make sense for Republicans and your story also potentially makes sense for Democrats. It doesn't explain independents, though, and independents are moving in the exact same direction. Um, now, you can argue there are no real independents, but I actually don't quite buy That's that. That's
0: exactly what I was
1: going to say. I knew you were going to say okay. that. But the, the truth is, is that uh, and furthermore, if you break down Republicans um, between like sort of Trump diehards, the Trump base and, and more skeptical ones, it also still trends in the same direction in terms of trade. So I, I'm not saying that your story is is completely baseless. I'm saying that I do think there's something else going on here, which is in some ways what Trump is doing is forcing a whole bunch of people to suddenly appreciate, you know, in the words of Jim Lindsay from Council on Foreign Relations, the value of oxygen which is to say we take oxygen for granted. We breathe it. We need it essentially for our – you know, to be able to live. We never think about whether or not we have a sufficient supply of it right up until the moment that we might be in a situation where it is actually threatened. And I think in some ways the same is true with respect to trade, which is – for a long time I think it was taken for granted. Um, and now what you are seeing in terms of, of the Trump administration's efforts to reshape the trade landscape – is, you know, a corporate sector that used to be relatively blase about this suddenly, you know, making aggressive arguments in favor of trade. And even more intriguingly to me, you actually have unions now saying that we've gone too far, um, which is legit unprecedented in my lifetime. Um, and so it's it's one of these things where I, I actually think the administration is trying to follow through on the promises that Trump made as a candidate. But I think they've actually lost the case in terms of the public.
0: Well, um. I was just reflecting on, um, since you and I share the same birth year um, mm-hmm. in a big round one it is, um, I was, you know, that in fact, in in fact, when we were born is just about when, you know, unions had been huge boosters of exporting through the fifties and much of the sixties. And something that I think, you know, is, is not true, for example, in the automotive sector, but that is true in the agricultural sector. And I, I have a piece. That will come out sometime soon at the National Interest. That that makes this point. The we don't appreciate, and I think Trump doesn't appreciate the extent to which some American sectors now simply can't exist without exporting. That the pork sector, the dairy sector, the soybean sector were all under huge pressure even before the tariffs, because international prices are too low, and the U.S. market can't can't possibly absorb. Um, you know, the my favorite statistic was that pork production shot up last year in a way that, you know, even the sort of pork industry magazine was like, we can't understand why large pork producers are adding so much production. The only way this works is if we can export more. So,
1: so what are the pork, names of pork industry magazines? I'm just curious.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I Googled it and I read it. for oh, now.
1: I'm, I'm dying to like, you know. What is it, like Bovine University? I mean, I, I or no, not Bovine, That is doesn't make sense. Orsine, Orsine That's University. <laughs> exactly. No, Sorry, but,
0: but, but the, you know, all of our politics, all the way across, you know, from what Trump says to his supporters to what unions say to their supporters and everybody else, are, are not premised on the idea that the U.S. economy is now built in a way that it's, it's really export or die, you yeah. know, you know, in, in a lot, a lot, a lot of sectors.
1: It's not just that, by the way, it's also that our export, you know, the one thing that, that comes through loud and clear in the surveys is that, you know, you're right. Trump supporters are actually more enthusiastic about trade, but they, they're enthusiastic about it in a mercantilist way, which is they think they want to export more and therefore trade – you know, Trump's trade policies will enable that. It overlooks the fact that an awful damn lot of our exports consist of imports, um, which is to say the, the way the global, the global supply chain works now. If, you, you know, if Boeing exports a plane or GM exports a car – there are component parts, relatively important component parts of those things that are not coming from the United States. They're coming from Mexico or China or some other part of the global supply chain. And that can't be, you know, redrawn as easily uh, as as Trump would think. And, and, you know, as further evidence for this, the fact that Harley-Davidson is shifting its production Um, Of exports overseas because they don't want they don't need the headache of of dealing with final assembly here.
0: Well, and indeed, one of the key sticking points in the the NAFTA renegotiation talks has been what percentage of Mexican components can be in an American car that counts as an American car. Um, Do you do you have a prediction of whether we actually get a NAFTA deal this time or whether this is a false alarm like the last three times that people looked at me earnestly and said, no, no, they're really going to get a deal this time.
1: Yeah, I got it. I mean, I right, said so th- this is lazy, but I'm going with false alarm. I simply don't believe, among other things, I assume that one of the sticking points that is not going to get resolved is the sunset clause, uh, because that's an insane provision that the U.S. seems to be making, which is we'll negotiate and it'll, it'll expire after five years. Regardless of what they feel about the deal, there is simply no way the Mexicans and the Canadians are going to invest this much effort just to have to go through this again in five years. That I, I'm extremely dubious about that. And I suspect that that's been one of the, the things that's been high-profile enough so that Trump will eventually scotch – even if a deal is made at the negotiator level, Trump will veto it. Um,
0: yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I see where – I mean, five years on something that in a normal world takes you two years plus to negotiate is a right. problem. But, you know, we have – had the problems in a number of sectors of places where deals were negotiated and then the world, you know, so for example, it shouldn't have taken this many years to renegotiate NAFTA and address some of the the difficulties. So you do, you do actually need, and our institutions are getting so hidebound, you you, you really do need the ability to, to say, oh, this is kicking the crap out of this sector or this region in a way we didn't anticipate, we need to be able to renegotiate.
1: Well, there. I mean, there are things like snapback provisions and what have, or, or escape clauses that would presumably take care of that. Yeah. But I th- your 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 point is a deeper one, which is to negotiate this kind of deal. You you in some ways want to routinize renegotiation is is not quite the way you'd want to put it. What you'd want to be able to have is a mechanism where, let's say, every five or ten years or so, because economics change, because technologies change, you would revisit the core questions and think, okay. What do we need? You know, much like a major domestic piece of legislation constantly requires amendments and and you know renewal, you would want that similar sort of provision, you know potentially for NAFTA. But it, what you wouldn't want to do is to get Congress involved every time, um, because that's the uh, that's the part where it becomes incredibly it becomes an incredibly heavy political lift. And if you're a president, you don't want to have to invest this kind of time or effort in doing that. Um, so I, I, my my point though is that I don't think it's it's going to fly. I think the deeper the more interesting question politically is there is a degree to which Trump has been able to keep Republicans on his side on this question because he's been able to pitch two different arguments to two different groups of Republicans. Argument one is just the out and out protectionism argument of tariffs are the greatest and, you know, trade wars are good and so on and so forth. And these are people that just don't want to try you know, they they want protection and they want it to be a permanent feature of, of Uh, you know, of the U.S. circa the 19th century. And therefore, you know, what Trump is doing is the greatest. The second group, and this is more tactical, acknowledges that that, you know, they don't want tariffs, but they also acknowledge that tariff, you know, raising tariffs are a bargaining principle or a bargaining tool through which you can potentially, you know, negotiate a greater deal. And so they've been able to at least say for the midterms, look, just be patient, you know, got the best negotiators, you know, they'll eventually negotiate a deal. And, and then, you know, if, if it takes a couple of months of pain, then it'll be fine down the road. That has worked up till now. I think they've gotten till the end of the calendar year for that to play. Um, but if we are in 2019 and we are still seeing all these kinds of tariffs and no evidence of forward progress, which, by the way, is where I think we're going to be, then suddenly that argument ceases to make much sense. And you're going to have, you know, potentially a Congress that will be, let's say, be more willing to exercise its authority um, on these questions, which will also be interesting. And I think, in some ways, much as everything, this all boils down to the midterms as a signal of whether or not the public actually buys this argument.
0: yeah, i'm um I'm not actually sure that what you're going to be able to read I think the tea leaves are going to be pretty muddy on trade. And I mean, also because I would have added sort of yet another school which mm-hmm. says, um, it's tariffs are one among a number of tools. That, that can be used in international economic policy, and altogether, the U.S. should be more should be using a range of tools more than it was willing to in the, at least the last one, if not the last two administrations. And um, that maybe there was a there was a model of ha- of of how much restraint the U.S. should have that again harkened back to a different time with a different degree of U.S. preeminence. Um, That's that's no longer the case. So you have those folks saying, you know, and I think of I mean, everybody from, say, Jennifer Harris, um, Mm -hmm. Hewlett, who's who's certainly not a Trumpist in any way, shape or form uh, to some of the union arguments to also some of I think this is the line that some of the uh, the more isolated, quote unquote, moderates within the the Trump administration would take and say, you know, there's a greater role for attempts at enforcement uh, than we saw, you know, sort of under the the and USTR, but um, that's a very technocratic. Um, it's very focused on sort of what are the realities of international economic power and how can you have um, how can you have impact on it. And you don't see anybody on either side of the aisle who's really been able to turn that into into something to talk to the public about. So I think I, I think that there's you're going to you're going to get a muddled mess.
1: Well, yeah, and the, I mean this this raises the bigger macro point, which is. Even on issues where the Trump administration might have a valid case to make that the status quo prior to them coming in office was not great, the administration's own incompetence on these questions, and I assume that you would agree with me that they haven't handled any of this terribly well, um, winds up sort of impeaching even the potentially valid critiques of that pre-existing order, or it makes it it more difficult – for those who want to argue for reform, because they inevitably then get associated with this sort of Trumpist, um, you know, uh, dist- you know, uh, uh, scorched earth policy.
0: Yeah, um, and I think the other side of that is the um, the, the the way that the the oh. Trump's actions are actually dismantling the architecture that you could use to implement any kind of international economic policy, yeah. sort of whichever of these schools you you came from. So, you know, the WTO, where the U.S. is no longer appointing officials, um, yeah. where the rest of the world comes and says, well, gee, the way you're using national security exemptions, it's not clear to us that you believe in the foundational principles of this thing. And, um, you know, so there's this interesting moment where you could, one could want to use the WTO to move in several different directions, but it's... <laughs> The WTO is one of a number of pieces. It's being
1: enervated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's really unclear.
1: So, um, let me let me ask you something, because you, you probably have a better answer to this than I do, um, because it, this is a lovely way to segue to, to sort of larger questions about the 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 future of the liberal international order. But assume for the moment that the midterms wind up with a, you know, what looks like a wholesale rejection for Trump. You know, he they lose the House. Um if they had control, keep control of the Senate, it's by a bare majority, um, huge gains by, you know, by Democrats and governorships and so on and so forth. It's read as a repudiation of the Trumpist um, political platform. Do you think that a Congress that, that is, you know, where at least the Democrats control one uh, one house, potentially two, winds up, you know, potentially acting as a, more of a, uh, a firebreak? against further destruction of international institutions? Or in fact, is it because it's Congress and they've been so used to deferring to the executive branch for so goddamn long, it's not going to change anything?
0: So no, is my short answer. It's not going to help very much. Okay. Um, and my reasons for that are that actually the places where the most destruction I think can come are places where Congress is least well-equipped to intervene,
1: so, even on trade, th- where constitutionally they can intervene,
0: um, Congress can't force the president to appoint um, mm. a- appoint people arbiters to yeah. the WTO. Uh-huh. Um, Congress, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting. I I think you know people have had some interesting and creative ideas about what. Which powers Congress could take back on trade, but with two closely divided houses and a lot of new blue members in red districts. And and as we alluded to earlier, both parties somewhat divided on what what good trade looks like. I don't I don't I don't I mean, Congress can't help you save the WTO. Um, Yeah. You know, Congress can pass resolutions saying you can't pull out of NATO. Um, Congress can't stop. You know, the president from throwing Starburst candy at our allies, um, 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 you know, Congress can't. Um, I mean, and some of the, the things where I think the most harm can be done at the U.N., um, it's asking again, it's asking a lot to take to ask a freshman Democrat in a red district, you know, here
1: yeah, vote
0: yeah. or U.N. funding that yeah. the president cuts. So. No. Um, I mean, I'm normally the person who argues that Congress could and should do a lot more. Um, Congress can't make the president go back to the Iran deal. It can't make yeah. him talk to our allies about that. It can't, um, you know, it can't mandate how we deal with Japan or South Korea around North Korea. So, mm-hmm.
1: no. Okay. Well, this then raises the this is a natural segue to the the, the next and last question we need to tackle, which is. Maybe it's my imagination, but this summer has seen a fair number of essays, including some by you, about the fact that Trump has been more successful at damaging the liberal international order than perhaps people realized you know, or would have expected a year or two ago. Um, and this in some ways I think has given rise to two different kinds of debates. Debate one is whether the liberal international order is even worth preserving, and there are a whole variety of essays – I'm thinking ones by Patrick Porter for Cato and, and Paul and I think, for Lawfare, you know, suggesting that, in fact, those defenders of the liberal international order are sort of presenting a very nostalgic, rose-colored view of those kinds of, of structures without realizing that there were fundamental problems that led to the political earthquake of 2016 in the first place. And then the question is, is that even – regardless of whether that's true, damage is going to be done. What can be done – you know, post-Trump. Can there be a post-Trump order that if perhaps is not the same as the liberal international order is nonetheless one that actually serves U.S. interests in terms of promoting uh, security and prosperity?
0: Yeah. So this has been a very interesting debate. Um, To the articles you mentioned, there was one by uh, Mira Rapp Hooper and Rebecca Listner, which I think appeared in the Washington Quarterly. Is that where that was? Hmm. Um, which is worth uh, which is worth checking out.
1: I'm going and, to check that out. I don't think I have looked at it, so yeah.
0: Um, and I published a piece at Lawfare myself that was trying to be a bit more forward looking. And I also um, I'm well proud. I feel like the intellectual godmother of a piece that uh, actually Bruce Jennelson published at Democracy Journal as as part of a a, a a symposium that I put together back in the spring. Um, so. You know, but I have to say, I am a little bit bored of the (laughs) let's argue about whether the international liberal order was good or bad, and let's argue about how liberal it was, and let's argue about whether the United States was acting in its own self-interest or not. Like, of course it was. Can we now move on, please? Um, Oh, and um, there's also a Graham Allison one, um, which I uh, think has some important flaws, and I also think that um, some of the Thucydides stuff, I'm not...
1: Sure. Well, anyway,
0: there's also a Gray in piece on the topic.
1: Um, yes, so, there is. Let's move on.
0: So, moving on, I think the next phase of of this conversation that I'd like to see is: so, what are the things about the international liberal order that the U.S. wants to keep? What are mm-hmm. what are the things that it does for us that we'll really miss when when they're gone? Number one and number two. What are the pieces that are actually working pretty well without us and/or others have a major interest in preserving, so they will be preserved anyway? So you know, sort of actually going out and taking the depth soundings about about what's what's there and and what's not. And that's where I think um, our our beloved our beloved people of the blob, including the ones who think that very proudly think that they're outside of the blob, um, including many of the people we just named. Um, we aren't always as forward looking as we need to be. And, and this, this is so, you know, for example, Mark Lynch has a piece out about sort of here's what the new security order looks like in the Middle East. You might not like it, but you need right. to acknowledge that it's there. Yeah. Um, there was a whole bunch of, of um, writing on both sides of the Atlantic about the German debate over whether to get a nuclear weapon or not. Now, no, um, Germany is not going to get a nuclear weapon in the next six months but the fact that that's now a scholarly debate that's happening tells you something really big has shifted in European security right. that you're planning and thinking about the future of NATO needs to take into account. Also, by the way, Turkey sort of really moving itself pretty thoroughly out of the democratic column and also pretty thoroughly into the like we are mad at the U.S. all the time column uh-huh. has major strategic
1: implications for Europe and the Middle East. Um, so. Wait, you want a substantive answer to all this? Um, I mean, I so, so I guess I would have a few thoughts. I mean, you know, in some ways, I would break it down into sort of three three baskets to to get all Helsinki on you, um, which is this this the security sphere, there's the economic sphere, and there's the sort of democracy and human rights sphere. Um, on the security sphere side of things, you can argue that. You know, US interests have actually been served pretty damn well by the sort of international security architecture that exists. That indeed, most of the the problems with respect to um, the US have been own goals, such as the never ending war in Afghanistan and uh, the sort of imbroglio in Syria and so on and so forth. I don't think that, that even Trump necessarily wants to get rid of NATO or the Pacific Rim alliances or what have you. And furthermore, If nothing else, I think we've got evidence that over the last couple of years, it turns out that the Europeans don't want to get rid of these things, you know, and our allies don't want to get rid of these things either. That they have, you know, to to use technical terms, they've had to put up with a lot of shit for the last two years, and nonetheless are doing so. Um, And so it might be the case that the security architecture will probably endure um, despite Trump's, you know, best efforts at disrupting it. Um, And this is where, in fact, I, I would acknowledge the point that even the The NATO summit that happened this last summer, even though a disaster on PR terms, uh, in terms of the way that that, uh, Trump handled it, there was substantive stuff achieved at the, you know, in terms of the NATO communique. And indeed, I'm going to do something extremely rare here. I'm going to praise John Bolton, uh, which is, you know, the, the reports that I've heard suggested that what Bolton tried to make sure was that the communique was locked down and agreed upon by everyone before Trump ever got there. Uh, which is unorthodox in terms of a NATO communique. But he did it because he knew that that way Trump couldn't, you know, uh, disrupt everything. Um, uh, Do you want to respond to that or should I keep going?
0: No, um, I was actually going to let you get through your other two. Okay.
1: Okay. so quickly, uh, in terms of uh, economics, that's that's a more interesting one where you, you could argue the problem there is that actually most of the rest of the world has an incentive to keep the system as we know it in place, but that's also the one where, um, as you say, there, there, at least in the past, there has been some discontent within the United States about the way the system worked. And so the question, an interesting question going forward will be, can that be renegotiated on terms more favorable to the United States? While at the same time, unfortunately you have a country like China, which is now in the last year, started articulating a different set of beliefs and actually proselytizing in a way which, which, which it did not even a couple of years ago. Um, And then finally, on the the democracy and human rights, in some ways, I think this is the biggest difference maker that Trump has had in terms of being president, which is the degree to which the administration just does not give a rat's ass about these issues. That in terms of either democracy promotion or human rights, unless the countries are named North Korea, Iran or Cuba, they are never going to talk about them. Um, And I I used to think of myself as a pretty realist kind of guy, but I have to admit it is depressing the, the – this is where I think – you said something before about like people who think of themselves in the blob or people who think of themselves as critics of the blob. I'm going to be very intrigued going forward about whether or not people who, who might have been really ardent critics of the whole democracy promotion, human rights promotion thing, in no small part because it got tied up with a rock in the first past you – know, in the last decade, now recognize that there is actually a value to the United States you know proselytizing these views Even if just in terms of proselytizing, it doesn't automatically get accepted everywhere Uh, just because, you know, you need a cheerleader for these kinds of values, Um, you know, in terms of of rallying, you know, democratic or human rights activists in authoritarian countries or in countries where the government is contemplating more authoritarian moves. Um, And I think in some ways that's the area where I really I will be curious to see whether a post-Trump world – um, actually, whether U.S. booster boosterism for that topic will make a difference.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to start with your last point. And I think something that is um, in many ways, it's great genius was not anything that it did but precisely that it held space open for yeah. civil society concerns, whether it was democracy or human rights, whether it was environmentalism or consumer rights or privacy protections. Um, and that that you know in, in in some ways the the whole third third bucket, you know, to, to use the Helsinki yeah. nomenclature, is is this negative space or it's actually creating space within which non-governmental activity can flourish, creating the expectation in societies that didn't have this, that you should have flourishing non-governmental activity. And then, you know, both sort of inconsistently, intermittently, but sometimes helpfully speaking up for it, and like actually holding open the space from within which people could critique and challenge us. Yes, and quite successfully sometimes, you know, and, and on big things like the Landmines Treaty right. or the sort of changing of the American position on climate changes.
1: Or the very the very fact the system allowed and tolerated criticism of the hegemon is in some ways one of the things that made it resilient. It actually it, 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 it inculcated a sense of buy in from other actors that while recognizing they weren't the most powerful state actor in the system, they did have a voice and that voice actually mattered.
0: Yes, and there's t- t- that to me is the the biggest thing, um, realist or whatever you want to call it, sort of the the critique of oh we won't miss the liberal international order because it did all these yeah, terrible yeah, things. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, even as it was doing all these terrible things, it held open the space for yeah. it to be criticized and, and challenged. And if right. you look at the if you look at the China model or the Gulfie model, um, or the Russian Or the Russia model. You're you're really going to you're really going to going to miss going to miss that space. But I think, you know, a a small cause for optimism is that, again, among the many, many actors that are also out there sort of fighting for their version of the order are a lot of both state and non-state actors that did kind of grow their strengths. In, in that space. So, you know, if you have an analysis that lets you look for those forces, then you see them and they matter. But if you insist on having an analysis that doesn't and I should say there are also plenty of negative forces that that grew up in that space. It's not, right. you know, I mean, this is also what gives you Al Qaeda and it's also what gives you, you know, um,
1: it's the dark civil society, if you want to
0: corporations it. stealing yeah. all your data, whatever, right.
1: whatever. Um, Unfortunately, I need to get going. Um, Yes,
0: on that note, um, it was great to see you. And uh, we'll see you again um, round about the playoffs, I suppose.
1: That is correct. Hopefully, you know, by this point, uh, the next time we talk, the Boston Red Sox will uh, have continued their march towards a a World Series. Um, And, you know, if that happens, it was because you and I did watch a game uh, at Fenway, which was quite, quite enjoyable.
0: Yes, in which I hasten to add, so we we really are a good luck charm. And um, until next time, Blogging Heads Nation.
1: Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.